Good morning, everybody. As we continue on in this uh, latter portion of 1 Corinthians, let's start this message with a prayer. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word and give us grace that we may clearly understand and follow the way of your wisdom. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hunger for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life, that we may feast on Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Aid your servant in bringing forth the word of God, that he may glorify you, and aid your people to hear these words of life as they are the words of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. I was looking through the sermon page on our website, and it has been approximately one year and four months since we started this sermon series on 1 Corinthians. We have about four weeks left, and with each book of the Bible that we have gone through so far, I believe we can attest to how good God is in leading His church. Um, some of you and many of you have responded by saying, wow, I can't believe in this season this passage was preached on. And it wasn't a passage that I just picked, but it had been planned and prepared many months in advance. And so this is something that we see where God's faithfulness and goodness just come out through the worshiping of his saints. As a preacher, although, I will say that as a preacher, I have been deeply challenged by some of the passages here in our study of 1 Corinthians, not only in its content, but how to preach that content to you as well. I wanted to perhaps give some counsel then on how to address some of the difficult portions of the Bible. When you, if you have been reading will inevitably come across. I would go so far as to say that if nothing in the Bible is difficult, then either, if nothing in the Bible you read is difficult, then either you are God or you're not reading it. And so I do believe that as we continue to study the Bible, there will be difficult portions because you're not God. And I think I can kind of basically sum it, sum it up into two different types of difficult passages in the Bible. I'm just going to make two large groups to help with the simplifying of the categorization. And the first category is the difficult passage where it is severe, where it is severe. It can be passages like where God commands the eradication of an entire nation like in Deuteronomy chapter 20 or in portions in Joshua, where they're commanded to kill every Canaanite. And yes, that even meant the women and children. Or it can be severe in the sense of Ephesians 5, where a woman is called to submit to her husband. Or even in these past chapters, like in Chapter 14, verse 34, where you see that women should keep silent in the churches because it's shameful to speak in church. When you first come across passages like these, 
it can kind of make you take a step back. My suggestion is this. When you come across passages that are severe, don't skip it. Don't just dismiss it. By dismissing it, we come into the danger of we ourselves being dismissed. This is the word of the Lord. And so we receive it by saying, thanks be to God. It's for his people's good that we have received it. It's not for God's good. God doesn't need this. These are his words. We need it. And we understand that it is by his very words that we have life. The word of God is the tree of life. No longer are we cut off from God's favor as his enemies, but the word became flesh so that those that believe in Jesus Christ will not only never thirst, but this is what Jesus said. We will have from our innermost being flowing rivers water, of living water at that. And by that, Jesus meant the Holy Spirit. And this is the power of God, to not only understand the hard sayings of the Bible, but to obey it, and in that way fulfill the chief and highest end of man, which is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This has been guaranteed to us in God giving us His Son, the first fruits of the resurrection, when Jesus died, he was buried for three days, and on the third day, God raised him from the dead. This is verifiable with the scriptures written down long before Christ was even born, and with the 500-plus eyewitness accounts recorded at different times and different places. Don't dismiss it. This indeed is precious, and when we listen to it, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we see ourselves being changed daily. Sometimes slowly, but surely. Don't dismiss it. But if you do come across something now, I would suggest, and you're reading, you have Bible reading plans, and you do come across something that's difficult, I suggest that you mark it. Maybe put a red question mark next to the passage in the Bible so that you can make sure to come back to it later. But, again, don't dismiss it. There's a second kind of difficult passage in the Bible. But before I get into that, I saw this recent video that I wanted to address. And it was, this, it was some preacher that made its way on the Internet about how, like, some, and this is in a mocking tone, some churches will go verse by verse and do expositional preaching and kind of rolling his eyes. But in a sense, in a nutshell, he would say, we don't do that because Jesus didn't go verse by verse and do expositional preaching as if to mock this kind of study. And to that, I just wanted to give a simple response since it has been making its round on the internet. Jesus is the diamond. Jesus is the treasure. We study the treasure. Even when Jesus taught, people received it because Jesus is the treasure. And they would respond saying, whoa, 
No one has ever taught like that, that before. No one has taught with this kind of authority because Jesus is the diamond. We are studying Jesus. That's what expositional preaching is. And so that's my response to that. But I want to say there's a second kind of difficult passage in the Bible. And at first, we may then also be tempted to skip or dismiss it too. For the, for the same reasons aforementioned, not one dot, not one iota will pass away until all is accomplished. In the Bible, it says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what is this second type of difficult passage? It's today's passage. So I'm just going to read it again because I believe this is a difficult passage. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our, our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. So, Paul is saying that he might go there, and if he goes there, he might come here. And if the other guy comes, you take care of him, okay? Okay, amen? Are you blessed? So blessed, right? So in my humble opinion, this is the other type of difficult passage. It's difficult because we might be tempted just to skip it altogether. We might just say to ourselves, Paul is going here and there, whoop-de-doo, I have no clue, that kind of thing. So moving on. So with these two types of difficult passages, my suggestion is to sit and read it over again. And if you still don't get it, give it a red question mark so that you know to come back to it again. Because it may be that it is in the most difficult passages of a text that you will receive a blessing that you would have never expected. It's in one of those places, those crevices in that diamond, you will see a refraction of the light you've never seen before and appreciate the beauty of God to an even greater degree. Now I have four points for you this morning and the next week we'll go over the rest of the points. The four points are plan, permit, persevere, and perceive. Plan, permit, persevere, and perceive. But before we get into those details, we should ask what is this passage about? And if you look at verse 10 of today's passage, I think it's written to us to give us some help into understanding it. In verse 10 it says, When Timothy comes, 
See that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. That's the second time the work of the Lord or the Lord's work is mentioned. The first time is in verse 58 of the previous chapter. In verse 58 it says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Be steadfast, immovable, and then here it is, always abounding in the work of the Lord. The theme of the passage is the Lord's work. It's not my work. It's not just church work. It's the Lord's work. And some incredible implications are shown here then. First, it's the Lord's work. And that means we do it the Lord's way. The Lord's work means we do it the Lord's way. I'm surprised when something, some, sometimes some people think that as long as we get the work done, that's what matters, right? This is not true for anything, let alone the work of the Lord. If your parents tell you to clean your room, and because you think you're smart, you clean one square inch of dust off your desk and say, all done, I cleaned my room, your parents will not give you a well done. They may not even respond with, you're so clever you will probably get punished and then still end up cleaning your room. Or if your parents ask you to clean your room and you clean your older sibling's room, which happens to be bigger, and go, now this is my room because you said clean my room and so I clean this room and that says my room, you will get a beat down from your older sibling and still end up cleaning your room. You may think that these are ridiculous or cute or whatever, but surely no one thinks that a child that does this completed completion of a task is really completion. No one thinks that, oh yes, you've completed the task when they do that. In the same manner, there is clearly a way that the Lord wants his work to be done. When the Lord gives an imperative or a command, the rest of the Bible shows us in what manner we ought to complete that command. This is what I'm saying is doctrine informing our application. This is principle leading to decision making. But I'm afraid too often we see people say, as long as we get people in the doors, it's fine. And we hear things like flirt to convert or youth group being 99%, I don't know, quote-unquote, fellowship, whatever that means, and 1%, if that, Bible study. Let's not talk about the difficult passages or dismiss them as archaic, so not to discourage the baby Christians, right? Let's not talk about these hard things. And so all these things that we see are far too common. We have been called to do the Lord's work. And that means we do it the Lord's way. And I'm not saying that there are more difficult scenarios that I've been asked or that I have personally faced. But when we, stop the, when we start to adopt the model of the ends justifying the means, we should recognize 
it's not going to be the end that you think. When you adopt a model of the ends justifying the means, recognize it is not going to be the end that you think. In Proverbs, the teacher reminds us, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Be wise, not in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil, and it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Do the Lord's work, the Lord's way. Second, it's the Lord's work. And what that second implication is, is we get to participate. This is an incredible privilege that we have been called to participate in. This is not just any work. It's the Lord's work. So yes, you have to do the work in the Lord's way, and it's going to get inspected. Whatever is bad, it's going to get burned up, and it will be rendered useless like we've read in chapter 3 of this letter. If the work is on the foundation of the word of Christ, however, it will survive, and he that does this will receive a reward. So that's why we don't tarry. We don't backpedal. We carry on. We run the race to win the prize, and we do it the Lord's way as we obey 2 Timothy 2.15. Some of you are very familiar with this passage. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, <clears throat> Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That was the theme verse for Awana. Awana is a children's program taught to kids um, the Bible. It starts from kindergarten and uh, goes all the way up to your teenage years. It's like when I try to explain it to people, I would say it's like boys and Girl Scouts for Christians, right? So you have like a little vest with badges, and then you memorize verses, and, you know, you compete. And it's just a wonderful children's program. My first experience as a church staff member was actually in the Awana program. And I didn't know how popular it was. I remember I went on missions to the Middle East, and the team that I went with consisted of members from all over the nation and some from across the world. But some of the team members, and after the mission trip was done and we were all back, some of the team members I went with decided to visit me in New York City. So I met them in the Upper West Side where I was attending school, and I thought maybe I should take them out to a nice sushi restaurant because, you know, New York City. And they asked me what I did now, now that I was back from the Middle East. And I told them I started a new gig in a church leading a children's program, and I was ready to get into it. It's a children's program called Awana. And immediately, before I got to explain what it was, immediately after I said that, the two of them both started singing in unison in the restaurant Firmly Awana stands, led by the Lord's coming. They sang the whole song in the sushi restaurant. And I was so embarrassed. Uh, I lived there. You know? <laughs> anyway, but even in that song, Firmly Awana stands, led by the Lord's command, 
approved workmen are not ashamed. Even in that song, it's the Lord's command that leads his people. It's not your own idea of what you think the Lord would want. And this is the great privilege we have in participating in the Lord's work. The third implication is this. It's the Lord's work. It will not fail. All flesh is like grass, and it's all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the work Peter is mentioning. It's grounded in the word of God. In the last portion of verse 58, it says, Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. When you do the Lord's work his way, it's not in vain. Don't worry about the work failing because it is not your work. And if it is God's work, it will not fail. So keep on keeping on. It's ultimately God that will see it through. Now, that's the setup from verse 58 that led us into chapter 16. We do the Lord's work the Lord's way, and here's the spirit of that theme. That work is to be abounding. This word is also used to describe the leftover food when Jesus fed the 5,000 and then the 4,000. It's translated there as leftover, but it's the same Greek word. It means abundance. It means filled to the brim, and it's overflowing. That's how we should be working. So we get to do the Lord's work His way, and the spirit in which we do it is in overflow. In other words, it's toil to the point of exhaustion. G. Campbell Morgan wrote that Paul had in mind the toil that has in it the red blood of sacrifice. <clears throat> I was, uh, I met some pastors at a, a retreat this past week, and I was telling some pastors why I sometimes enjoy lifting. And by lifting, I, of course, mean lifting almond croissants into my mouth. No, but um, lifting is really a fun hobby to have. And if you can lift a certain amount of weight for a certain number of repetitions, what you do is you calculate your max weight at one rep using some formula, and then you put yourself on a program that will help you steadily increase that weight. And for me, that's the part that makes it fun. Every day, the point is every day you get stronger. Any gains you make are trackable. And what happens then is you start putting everything, you're, you're all into it. You want to make those gains. Sweat and sometimes even blood is sacrificed for the gains. However, I will say that this is temporary. But I'll argue that the discipline is eternal. But the gains are temporary. And I can apply, by the way, I can apply this principle to other things as well, like you making money. 1 Corinthians 9.25, Paul reminds his readers this. Every athlete exercises 
self-control in all things. You want to make certain gains. You want to earn a certain amount of income. You want to get to a certain place of success. You sacrifice. You exercise self-control. That discipline is so important for you to achieve. Otherwise, you will not succeed. You will not be the best at what you do. But every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Why? Because they want to be the best. But they do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable. What's more important is the imperishable. For the perishable, we're willing to give up our blood, sweat, and even tears. If that's the case, then what about the imperishable? If you don't understand this, then perhaps you will be tempted then to complain too quickly, give in too easily, and burn out too simply. We are to do the Lord's work the Lord's way. And what's the spirit of that theme? In Philippians 2, Paul writes telling the Philippian church that Epaphroditus nearly died for the work of Christ. For the Lord's work, Epaphroditus nearly died. He risked his life to complete what was lacking in their service. In what spirit? What would you not risk? What would hold you back? What would make you give up? When at the temple, Jesus made a whip and chased out all the people that were selling sheep and cattle, flipped all the tables of the money changers, and then when the disciples saw it, it says they remembered the zeal for your house will consume me. With what spirit should you work for the kingdom of God? So we are to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way with consuming zeal. There is no higher calling. There is no greater task set before us. I want you to imagine a world leader, someone that you respect and someone that you love. The world leader asks you to be their personal envoy. Maybe you're living in the 1700s, and George Washington says, I want you to be my ambassador. Take my letters and read them to all the people that need to hear it. He may even go on, we may be in trying times, but we will prevail. And this will be the greatest nation that the world has ever seen. As high as that calling might be, there is an even higher calling. And with calling comes honor. With a high calling comes high honor. And I'm telling you, there is no greater calling. That's the incredible reality of the task we have been given. And now that we've established this theme, what we saw from verse 58, I'm hoping that you can see this all throughout Paul's writing when he is describing his journey in this passage. With this theme covering the whole passage, the points now, I hope, can be quickly discerned and even understood. So here's point one. Plan. When you do the work of the Lord his way with consuming zeal, 
You plan. In verse 5, it says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. 1 Corinthians was written by Paul at the end of a three-year stay at Ephesus. He handed the letter to Timothy and sent him to Corinth. Originally, Paul, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, planned on following Timothy right after he left to Corinth, then he would go to Macedonia, then back to Corinth. That was his plan. And now he's telling them in this letter, at the end of this letter, he's telling the change of plans, but he still intended to visit them, that he was coming to them. Verse 19, but I will come to you soon if the Lord's, Lord wills. Why? Because as we've been reading, the Corinthian church was a hotbed of problems. They had a hundred problem, problems. So Paul will stay with them even through the winter, and the church is expected to provide for his needs and his journey. Planning, then, is looking ahead and preparing. It's not just wishful thinking. Unfortunately, too many now just sit around hoping to get a check from the government or something, not planning their future. You can't just walk out of here thinking, wow, I'm hyped, and then do nothing expecting everything to fall into your lap. Plan. Go to the gym with a regimen. You start a business project with goals. If you don't go, uh, if God wills, I guess I'll start. If you go, if God wills, I'll start moving my feet. You don't do that. Plan to move your feet. Use the wisdom that God has given you, however big or small that is. Nehemiah, when he heard that the wall of Jerusalem was broken down, he wept, fasted, and prayed. But he had a plan. In his prayer, he asks for success for his plan. He didn't go to the king and just cry, and when the king asked him how he could be of help, Nehemiah didn't respond by saying, I don't know, but this is just terrible, isn't it? And just keep on crying. He had a plan. My friends, there are too many who think it's common sense to plan vacation trips, to plan weddings, to plan business projects, to plan lifting regimens, but can't connect it with planning to do the Lord's work. When you do the Lord's work His way, with consuming zeal, you plan. Verse 7, For I do not want to see you now, just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. Point number two is this. The, Lord, the work of the Lord His way, with consuming zeal, you plan, if the Lord permits. Paul diligently plans. He pours out a lot of thought and effort into his plans. There is no doubt about this. He is a visionary. We know that he was in Asia Minor, but he had even plans to go as far as Spain. In Romans chapter 15, Paul talks about journeying to Spain. Why? Because no one had been to Spain yet. It was conquered by the Roman Empire. Some of the greatest thinkers were in Spain. 
like the philosopher Seneca, who also happened to be the prime minister of the Roman Empire, also the tutor of Nero, and he lived in Spain. But even though he diligently planned, he remained flexible. Because even though we plan, the Lord directs our footsteps. Some people might think that the proverb is to mean that we don't plan because the Lord directs our footsteps. They have precisely the other way around. Because the Lord directs our footsteps, we can plan and we remain flexible. Some people also may take it, if the Lord permits, to say something like skittish. Um, it's the uncommitted ones that will use the, the if the Lord permits to a level where they can use it not to commit to anything at all. In fact, this is what the Corinthians accuse Paul of. And he addresses it in the second letter, in the first chapter to the Corinthians. But that is not the spirit in which Paul is saying this. He asks rhetorically, was I vacillating? Meaning, was I just going back and forth? I may visit you, I may not visit you, and I just can't make a decision. No, that's not what he was meaning. For he does not make plans according to the flesh, he says in that second letter. In Acts 16, it's shown that he went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, and it says in Acts 16, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, they, when the, and when they had come to Mysia, they, stepped, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, he immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God has called us to preach the gospel to them. In Acts 16, Paul had a plan. He was going to go to Asia Minor, which was south, and evangelize there. But it says the Holy Spirit forbid them to speak the word. And so you know what? You can't go south. Let's go north to Bithynia. And the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And I don't know exactly how they were not allowed. We just know the what, right? That the Spirit did not allow them. They were not permitted to go. So then they started going west. And that's where they ended up, in Macedonia. If planning was an important lesson to some, some of you, you are terrible planners. You need to learn this basic truth. Plan. Some people, this is an important truth and a lesson to learn. But if planning was an important lesson to learn for some, being flexible is an important lesson to others. Some of you are planners. Some of you plan to the T. But what happens when it doesn't go according to plan? Do you have to have it your way? Do you get frustrated and angry, blame others? Maybe you're a project manager in your workplace. Do you equate being flexible with being soft and irresolute? The discernment that Paul had was that even though he planned, and he planned it to the T, he knew that the Lord could change that plan at any moment, and he remained open to that leading. Uh, David Livingston, 
Some of you may know. Everybody should know. But David Livingston planned all his life to be a missionary. And he planned all his life to be a missionary to China. But he never got to go there. He ended up in Africa. And now we know him as one of the most famous missionaries to Africa. He is described to some as the Mother Teresa, Neil Armstrong, and Abraham Lincoln rolled into one. He mapped out, not only mapped out the continent more than anyone else before him, his primary goal as he was mapping out the continent of Africa was to bring people to Christ. He is considered to be one of the most impactful missionaries to have ever lived in the modern world. He was also considered to be one of the greatest abolitionists for Africa's former slave trade. He exposed the horrific and treacherous slave trade that was happening in Africa. The extent of how it was happening was unknown before he would bring it to light because he truly had a heart for Africa and gave his life for this cause. So a servant of the Lord doing the Lord's work must also be flexible to see if the Lord permits. A hard-nosed and stubborn adherence to all your plans may really mean that you believe it's your work, your way, with consuming zeal. But no, it's the Lord's work, and He leads. The third point is to persevere. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. This goes all the way back to the Lord's great commission in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Spirit. But don't just stop at verse 19. You have to continue on from verse 19. I think this is why discipleship programs tend to fail. We think it's a hit-and-run type of situation. Hey, 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 let me give you these four points. Do you believe? Okay, let's baptize you. And after they're baptized, I'm out. That's a stop at verse 19. Keep going. And in verse 20 of Matthew 28, it says, Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This cannot be done in a two-month discipleship program. I am increasingly concerned that we do not know what discipleship is. Discipleship is a lifelong program. And it's a comprehensive one. It's everything Jesus has commanded us to do. Not just the things that we consider essential. Oh, you might say, let's split up the primary and secondary, and if we don't get to the secondary, oh well, but I'm out in two months. This is not true. This is not right. Paul knew how long he needed to stay. David Livingston may be the greatest missionary of the modern world, but the greatest missionary of all time is right. Jesus. Jesus is the answer. But Jesus directly commissions Paul. And God uses Paul to go to lands never ever reached before to make disciples. And although he went to so many places, he stayed with them years. Ephesus, three years. And 
these other places years, and he would visit them again more after that. Corinth, he stayed first for the first time in 18 months, and he planned on staying at least one more winter. He went on three missionary trips to Galatia. He was thorough because he persevered. And I believe that this is the call of the pastor. I had plans. Many of you know this. Shortly after I finished my studies in seminary, I joined a program to help pastors plant church in New York City. I had it all planned. I did my interviews. I made my connections. I networked, right? I set up dates to see which part of the city I could go into. But then one day I was asked to be the pastor of the English ministry of a Korean church. So in obedience, even though I had people committed to joining me in the church plant, I stayed and pastored this ministry. And it grew into an independent church. And we are persevering in our discipleship and maturing as saints of God. That's the pastor's call. It's the call in Ephesians 4.13. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, who are the pastors, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. But I would say this is not only the pastor's call, but anyone and everyone, for are we not all ambassadors of Christ? It's for anyone and everyone doing the Lord's work. It must be thorough. It must be complete. You are called to persevere. No one wants their work to be in vain. So doing the Lord's work, the Lord's way with consuming zeal will mean for you to persevere so that it will not be in vain. Evangelism, discipleship, none of those are hit and runs. You must be in it for the long haul. And the fourth and final point is to perceive. Verse 9, it says, For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And as you plan, you remain flexible to the Lord's leading. As you persevere, you must also be able to discern. Paul was able to discern that there was a wide door in front of him. You can plan, be as flexible as a gymnast or whatever, and even though it's thorough, you can be as thorough as you can be, but if you cannot perceive, you'll be in trouble. Some of you may be thinking that then this may be the most elusive of the four characteristics I pointed out in this passage so far. You may be right, but it shouldn't be. How can you discern if it's really an open door or if it's a trap. Some of us have been burned. By the way, I don't think it's obvious all the time. In fact, many times the obvious choice is the one that leads to harm. In Acts 13, when they needed to know what to do next, and it wasn't that obvious to them, the church gathered to worship and fast. It was then the Holy Spirit called Paul and Barnabas to go to Cyprus. The Holy Spirit guides his church and he calls the church to worship, fast, and pray. These things should be the regular pattern of the church. Fasting obviously can't be done all the time, otherwise you'd be dead. But it should be the normative pattern of the church, especially when the church faces major decisions. 
The church does not go by worldly wisdom. The church is led by God. In Acts 2.42, we see that the church is devoted to these things. They devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching, the koinonia, or fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Some people, on a side note, some people think that fellowship just means like you guys play laser tag together. That's not true. Koinonia, or fellowship, is something that the Holy Spirit gives. In the benediction, I pray that the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you. What does that mean? And it has everything to do with the covenant community. When you are in fellowship of the Holy Spirit, there is a supernatural sharing that happens with you and God and you and other people, other fellow believers. And that sharing is highlighted when we worship right here, right now, and it's especially highlighted in communion. So in Acts 13, it's all summed up worship and fasting because Acts 2.42 is worship. As we pray and worship God together, we are, we are able to see the doors that are open for the church to move through. So when someone comes up to me and says, how sh should I do or how should we do this or that? And I know that they haven't even lifted up one prayer for it. Yeah, I am skeptical. They're like, Pete, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? You haven't even lifted up one prayer? I am skeptical. Because I don't think you can be able to discern well without worship and fasting. So this perceiving is very much tied in with worship and in special times of need, fasting as well. This is why we do things together. We worship together. We go on retreats together. We pray together on Saturday mornings. We fast together. And last year, I believe as a church, we fasted twice last year together. And so as the Holy Spirit gives us discernment, we move together. And in moving together, we see that God is maturing us together. Who we are today, we recognize this, who we are today is not who we were yesterday because God had been moving us through these open doors. And yes, this also has individual connotations as well. Just as your whole body gets stronger when you train, you'll notice that your, finger, your fingertips have better grip strength, your feet move faster, your core is sturdier, etc. So perceiving is then is tied to our fasting and worship, learning the Bible, fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. And this is why it's so important that you participate in the studies that we do, the prayers that we lift up, and the worship that we give. These are all important if you want to do the Lord's work, the Lord's way, with consuming zeal. And you can see why there's two parts to this, because the next week we'll finish up the rest of the points. So let me just remind you, you plan, you go as God permits, you persevere, and perceive open doors and opportunities as you worship. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you teach us in your word. We pray, God, that we would no longer be people sitting idly by, twiddling our thumbs. But Lord, because of the truth that you have given us, we are now called to be propelled to all the places that you send us to.
but you don't send us empty-handed. You send us equipped for the work of the ministry by the power of your word and your Holy Spirit. Help us to discern well so that we can be workers who are not ashamed that will do your work, your way, with consuming zeal. Oh God, grant us this grace as your church and as your people. Let's take this time to pray and let's lift up to God. Have you been working? Have you been doing the Lord's work? Because you, my brother, my sister, you have been most assuredly called to do it. So lift, let's take this time to lift up our hearts, giving unto God our devotion, our sacrifice, our blood, sweat, and tears for the Lord's work. Let's pray.